Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. We are the walking wounded. You can't see our scars anymore. We look normal, we look fine, but the scars you left are on our mind. Another day, another long, long day. I'm inside, I'm outside, but either way, you left me alone. When all the time you fed a lie that I believed. He looked shiny and he looked new, like he had some kind of glow. We were fed every word he said like it was gold. How was I to know that in the end, we're left alone? Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. In May 2017, a sect that started in Melbourne, Australia 50 years ago and has been highly secretive over the last few decades, decided to change its closed doors policy and go public. Whilst up until now very little has been known about the group except by direct conversations with former believers, its members go to government schools, attend public universities, and work in everyday jobs. They could be your neighbour, your colleague, or even a friend, and you'd have no idea what's really going on in their private lives. For this episode, we're looking at a group that meets this podcast's three criteria for a cult on all counts. Charismatic leadership and control around disengagement, and a belief in their sole access to the truth, but particularly the one that pertains to secrecy. I need to be clear that the word cult is a subjective one, and it means different things to different people, which is why I've been very careful to define the terms that I use for the show. The other thing I need to say is that although I've reached out to this group's founder in a couple of different ways to try and get his perspective, I've only been able to speak to those who no longer follow his teachings, as he never got back to me. My interviewees' words are their own, and I have verified what I can with corroboration from others. I've also removed some statements that I couldn't corroborate, and the views of each person are not necessarily the views of this show. I've been researching this group since I started working on this podcast in early 2017, and up until May of last year, it was almost impossible to find out anything about them online or in print. The only way to access information was by speaking to those involved directly. This is the first time that any of them have spoken out publicly, and the first time this group has ever been looked into by any kind of media. Before we continue, a content warning. This two-part episode will deal with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours, as well as references to suicide. And there's a little coarse language. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. So, let's talk about a little-known Australian sect called Outreach International. Constantine Chirukas, better known as Con Costas, and Eftihir Drugas were both born in Alatsata, Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. According to the Association of Alatsatians, quote, One of the characteristic elements which distinguished Alatsata was the religious zeal of the inhabitants. All Alatsatians were raised in this atmosphere of the reverential devotion to the divine, end quote. Both emigrated to Australia, and when Con was 45 and F. Tahir 25, 
They married at East Melbourne's Greek Orthodox Church on April 16, 1939. They went on to have two children in quick succession, Christina and Anthony Costas, the latter of whom was born in 1941. When it formed 60 years ago, one of the first decisions of the Australian Evangelical Alliance was to bring American evangelical preacher Billy Graham out to Australia, which it did two years later under the banner of the Southern Cross Crusade. Writing on the ongoing impacts of this crusade in 2007, when the Alliance celebrated its 50th year, Christian Today website published an article entitled The Effect of Billy Graham Crusades in 1959 Still Being Felt Today. Speaking at the MCG, or the Melbourne Cricket Ground for our non-cricket fan listeners, in March 1959, Billy Graham drew in a 143,000-strong crowd. His Sydney sermon drew in 150,000, which was 1.5% of the entire population of Australia at the time. One of the attendees was Con and Eftahir's 17-year-old son Anthony, better known as Tony. At the Moore Theological College Annual Library Lecture on May 26, 1989, Dr Stuart Piggin analysed Australian Bureau of Statistics figures to show declines in the rate of alcohol consumption and extramarital births in the year following Billy Graham's tour, which he suggested could be directly linked back to the Crusade. Whether the ongoing effects of the Crusade were all positive is open to question. Billy Graham, who passed away earlier this year, certainly influenced the direction of Tony Costas's life and Tony would commit his life to Jesus at the Crusade and go on to form a group, some of whose members say their involvement had a lasting negative impact on them and their families. Former members I've spoken to say many have experienced various psychological issues and that their families were split apart. Now in his 70s, as a young man, Tony Costas originally had aspirations to become a pilot. After his Southern Cross Crusade attendance, Tony found his plans began to shift. Hugely inspired by the Reverend Graham, Tony Costas became a youth leader at his local church, the St James Church of England, under Minister Harry Broadley. A year later, he met 16-year-old Judy at the church, who would later become his wife. Judy would go on to train as a nurse, whilst Tony was studying an apprenticeship in aircraft maintenance. At 18, he preached his first sermon from an Anglican pulpit, then at 21 resigned his job at Trans Australia Airlines to attend Bible College. In June 1965, Judy and Tony were married, and Tony was assisting Harry Broadley, who was now pastor at the non-denominational Southern Cross Evangelical Mission. Then, in September 1967, Tony says he became uncomfortable with some aspects of his former mentor's life, including relationship indiscretions, and so led a group of around 50 people to join him in a movement he called the Melbourne Outreach Crusade, or MOC. In May of 1968, Tony resigned from his day job as a sales engineer to focus his life on MOC. In July 1968, the group opened Melbourne's Mock-In coffee shop, offering, quote, coffee, conversation and Christ five days and six nights a week. Tony says they were reaching out to young people with broken lives who were deserted by their families, according to an article in the Ottawa Journal in 1979, which is one of only two sources I could find quoting Tony directly aside from his own publications. As I'm going to quote fairly extensively from Tony's works, I'm using a voice actor to read the excerpts, and that's mostly to give you a break from my voice. According to his 2016 book, Led Into Love, Tony was given a message from God in July of 1970. As God's word unfolded to me on that July night, I was amazed to discover that he was sending me to Moscow to confront the Russian leader. I felt that God's purpose in sending me to Moscow was as significant as his purpose in sending Jonah to Nineveh. 
raising the funds for the journey by appealing to his community for donations. In September, Tony set off with his mock-in colleague Ernie Broadway, Ernie leaving his newlywed wife Cheryl, and the 28-year-old Tony leaving Judy and their three young children behind in Melbourne. Bronwyn, the eldest, was four, Simon, two, and Tanya, the youngest, was less than three months old when their father embarked on the seven-month-long trip that also took him to the Philippines, North America, the UK and other parts of Europe. Tony and Ernie spoke at various churches along the way, with many believers supplying them with funds to further their mission, and in Led Into Love, Tony speaks of many prophecies being shared with him. For example, a woman named Dina in London, Ontario, telling him that he would find resistance at the Russian border, but that it would be removed. After over five months travelling, Tony and Ernie were finally going to make it to Moscow and the purpose of their mission. Tony says when their flight was diverted to Leningrad upon descent, that had they landed in Moscow... I believe our lack of funds would have caused an immediate problem. Of course, I can't prove that, but I do believe that Satan intended to create resistance at the border by using our financial dependence on God against us. Seeing this, I felt a thrill of excitement at the way God had foiled our enemy with that last-minute diversion, which had us clearing customs in Leningrad, where, inexplicably, our lack of liquidity passed unnoticed. Tony interpreted this as Dina's Ontario prediction coming true. Tony and Ernie found that Moscow didn't exactly welcome them with open arms, nor provide quite like their earlier travel destinations had done. Having paid return flights along with hotel accommodation, including breakfast for two weeks, the last nine days of their stay left them with just over $1 in funds and no meals aside from the hotel breakfasts to keep them going. When the fated meeting with the Russian leaders didn't eventuate, Tony says he finally realised that the trip was a test of his faith. He wrote to Judy, I began to understand what the Bible means when it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Far more important to God than a completed mission was that he could firstly have a servant who believed and obeyed him, no matter what. In Led Into Love Again, Tony expands on this. From the outset... God said he was sending me to Moscow to speak to the Russian leader. I understood that to mean going there as his representative to confront those in control of that godless system. Yet, as it turned out, I did not even need to walk the short distance from our hotel to the Kremlin to confront the real ruler of Russia. In taking me to Moscow, God had led me straight into the devil's lair. He then withdrew his presence, leaving me to stand or fall by my own faith in him, just as he had done with Jesus in the desert. As our days in Moscow passed and I felt increasingly abandoned, dispirited and hungry in the midst of that oppressive city, Satan went to work. His aim was to undermine my faith and turn me away from my belief in God and his word to me. As with Jesus in the wilderness, the outcome was not a given. I could have left Moscow desolate, defeated and unwilling to ever trust God again. But also like Jesus, I emerged victorious from that encounter with Satan. When I left Moscow... It was in the power of the Spirit. I was strengthened and equipped for my God-given calling as never before. Far from losing faith that he had perhaps misinterpreted God's message in sending him to Russia, or taking it as a valuable lesson about leaving on a long trip overseas without saving enough money, Tony had interpreted his days with Ernie living on breakfast alone as something quite different. Not only that but the fate of the Soviet Union as a tool of Satan to oppress God's people was sealed. That may seem a big claim to make, and it's certainly not something I can prove. Yet I know in my heart that the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was the direct result of my confrontation with its true ruler in Moscow 20 years earlier. Also on this trip, Tony says that he was given another message from God in Canada in December of 1970. This message, he says, quote, was to become from then on my overriding theme. According to his 1983 book, The Ultimate Attainment, God directed him to the first eight verses of David chapter 12, 
and that therein lies the story that presents the highest calling given to mankind, that of Mary's response to Jesus at a dinner party in Bethany. We'll talk a bit more about that later. Upon his return to Melbourne and mock, Tony says, I knew it would not simply be a matter of us picking up where we had left off seven months earlier. I told them that I did not take it for granted that I would simply step back into leading them and that I would only do so if they wanted me to. I also said that if they did take me back as their leader, I would make two fundamental changes, both of which had come out of my recent experiences with God. The first was that whatever we did together from then on would be built on the two great commandments about loving God and loving one another, Luke 10.27. The second change was that I would be the final authority. That was something I had previously avoided, not wanting to be seen as a one-man band. But I now knew that that was the only way I could fulfill the calling that God had given me. From a video on the Outreach International website called The Vision for OI and dated February 1998 at a New Zealand family retreat, here's Tony himself. I understood by then because on the Russian trip God had, had shown me the principle of, of, uh, of being the final authority and leading and so on. And so I did that. But I saw that as only relating to the one church that I had in Melbourne. I've now interviewed ex-members of a number of different cults, and a question I always ask them is about red flags to look out for that may show a group could be problematic. One of the things that's regularly come up is when a leader claims some version of this kind of final authority, whereby their decisions cannot effectively be questioned. And indeed, some people were turned off after hearing this idea from Tony and broke away. Ernie, having returned to his wife Cheryl, was one of those who slowly faded off. Tony said of this, quote, When a runner drops out, the race continues, but for him it is literally game over. Once Ernie decided to place conditions on his relationship with God, he disqualified himself, for God's race can only be run on God's terms. End quote. For those that remained, Tony Costas became an undeniable force in their lives. In 1973, Tony claims God again spoke to him about the calling he had given him. This was the year that Outreach International was officially formed, although they only had a single church in Melbourne at the time. By this time, there were about 450 people attending, and it was a place they generally went as well as attending other churches. You weren't so much a member at the time. The sessions were quite involved, though, There would be an afternoon church and a night church, and people would bring sleeping bags for their kids to sleep up the back as it went on late into the evening. Robert Sullivan and his wife had met Tony at a mock-in meeting in 1972. They found themselves very taken with him and resolved to stay in touch. When they decided to move overseas to Canada, they scheduled a visit to see Tony and Judy again before they departed. Tony said to be sure to look him up if they ended up in Toronto, where he was planning on heading again himself. Robert and his partner arrived in Toronto and, as promised, looked up Tony. Along with the Costases, they found a welcoming community. They became convinced that they had found their higher calling and readily joined the church. Little did they realise that this would be the beginning of a decades-long involvement in a group that would heavily impact the lives of themselves and their children and not in ways that they'd anticipated. Here's their daughter, Laura, whose voice you heard reciting her poem at the start of the episode. When they met him, because he is so charismatic, they did feel like they had a calling, like this this is our calling to be here, a part of this church, and it just, you know, they felt, that's the moment they felt, you know, committed, I guess. Laura was born in 1978 and was therefore born into the sect. Tony was facing a few struggles with other church leaders who felt they should be considered equal in status to him, some of whom left OI as a result. I'm told that in the UK there was a woman preacher who wanted to be part of OI, but male members took over her church. Tony states in Led Into Love, quote, I have never been partial to women pastors. 
Here's former member Laura again on the status of women in OI. Oh, they're definitely second rate. So the men, the men are only leaders. Like yes, so men leaders. Um, they have men's retreats. They have men's meetings every like once a month, I think, on a Wednesday. Um, and the leader and the girl, the ladies, whatever, they just follow suit. They're supposed to obey their men. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's pretty much just run by the men. Max Poganovsky was also born into OI and brought up how patriarchal OI was with me. Incredibly so. Like, um, men had special meetings where they got together and the father was definitely the head of the household and women were expected to be subservient. And, um, and that always struck me as a little bit wrong, even as a boy. And from a very young age, I've been obsessed with things being fair. I'm a a fierce supporter of women's rights and um and I don't know maybe maybe this experience has something to do with that an excerpt from chapter six book seven of the CQ first series by Tony Costas in 1975 reads what then is friendship with the world to have anything in your life which does not please God is to have friendship with the world and that is a wrong affection if it does not please God it is wrong A woman who is espoused to a man does not need to buy a book on what is right or wrong in espousal. All she has to do is to find out what pleases her husband. If he considers something in her life to be an expression of unfaithfulness, whether or not it appears as such to others, then she will honour his desire and rid herself of it. After all, he is the one that she needs to please. And here's Tony himself from one of his website videos called Greater Love Has No Man from a Bangkok retreat in 1998. A man is naturally independent. A woman is naturally dependent. Her, her, her natural instinct is to want a man who will fulfil her. A man's natural instinct is to be the achiever, to be the person who he doesn't obviously need anybody. And, uh, and he's got a very good deal. David and Anne, who asked me not to use their real names, ended up involved with OI for around seven years, though they say this involvement has affected their whole lives. They reside in Toronto and met Tony when he and Ernie had come through on the Russia trip. One of their neighbours was a member of a church that didn't have a pastor at the time. I'm using their words, but not their voices. So a year after Tony had gone back to Australia... They asked Tony to come to Canada to become the pastor of this church in Toronto. And so Tony did, and he came with the whole entourage. Another family, his secretary, oh, you know, everybody but his dog and cat. And uh, he became pastor of this church, but then he laid the law down, and within six weeks, the church split up. He caused a split in the church, and half the people went with them, and half stayed, and that's how the whole thing got going in Toronto. I asked what Tony was demanding of people to create this response, and Anne and David said it was about full commitment, which didn't seem too harmful at first. You could see some validity to that point to some degree, but it was just the beginning of what was going to come, right? It was like, I'm laying down the law. If you're not going to really seriously commit to this, then there's the door sort of thing. It started out a lot tamer than it is now. You know, quite innocent enough in some ways but it was all about control and the commitment Tony demanded of people. In 1975, the Melbourne OI pastor Ted preached that Tony was God's chosen man and that OI members were to be considered, quote, under authority. This particular sermon was heard of by members across the world, including the Sullivans who were still in Canada at the time. The idea was that you had to obey those above you in the church's chain of command with everyone finally answering to Tony at the top. It was a contentious subject, and some members walked out and left as a result. Younger OI members heard rumours about the split of 75 decades later. It had taken him another five years to get there, but from this date, all remaining members were considered under Tony's final authority, 
just as he had stipulated to Mock after his return from the Moscow trip. Those at this meeting were told that they had to make a statement affirming their commitment to Tony directly. They had to recite the words, For me to live is Tony Costas. There were a few hundred people there, and the ask wasn't taken lightly. Some who made the vow believed that the message must have been lost in translation somewhere, as Tony himself wasn't there. They decided to interpret it as just reconfirming their commitment, as they wanted to remain part of the group. Over the next few weeks, a list of those who had been ousted would be read out at subsequent meetings. Here's Laura. So people either went, I'm with you, or I'm gone. So I think before that, it was a little bit more... I guess, open to other people and churches and, and other beliefs. I get, you know, sort of religious beliefs, I guess. And then it became, no, you've got to follow me. And so some people did and some people didn't. But that created, I think that's sort of when he really created this following, I guess, of people and him and his church. Anne and David explain further. And again, these are their words, but not their voices. Tony is God's man. And that's still basically the whole premise of the whole thing, that God sends a man and he takes responsibility and you have to follow what he says. And whether it's right or wrong, you're absolved of responsibility because you're doing what you're told. You know, there's a lot of people out there that don't want to have to make decisions, that want to be told what to do. And it's not like these are stupid people. These are educated university people. There's people with degrees, aerodynamicists, doctors, lawyers within the church. So, you know, you wonder. You can get anybody to do anything. And what Tony says supersedes anything that's in the Bible, or what you may be hearing from God yourself, it overrules everything. Tony's word is, he believes he's God in terms of what he says. Other people I spoke to expanded on this point too. And a small note that I spoke to all of these people independently over many months and in locations all over Australia and across the world. They said that being obedient to the leader rather than trusting in one's own judgment became a core part of how OI operated. Through the 1970s, Outreach International grew from Melbourne to Adelaide, then Sydney and Canada. Over the next 20 years, their website claims that God added further congregations in Nigeria, the UK, America, New Zealand and Europe. In spite of its name, however, the group has not been keen on any kind of outreach work for decades. I'd originally been struggling to find out many details about Outreach International and Tony Costas, except from ex-members, but during the process of writing and researching this episode, the notoriously tight-lipped organisation published a website with access to many of Tony's writings and a few videos, some of which I've already referred to. It was a surprising development. Even now that they've made their own site public, you'll only get two pages of Google results on a search for the exact phrases Tony Costas and Outreach International which seems odd for a group so long established and that claims to have so many communities around the world. From their website, at the time of researching this episode, you don't get a great sense of what's different about this church from other churches, nor any details about meetings that you can attend, just a contact form if you want to get in touch. The end of their About Us page reads, quote, Jesus once told his disciples to pray that God's will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. It is our belief that this prayer is being answered, not at some vague time in the far-off future, but now. I filled out their contact form with an interview request for Tony Costas on October 4th, 2017, and to date I've not had any response. Nine days after my message, Tony launched his own personal website, The Word and the Spirit, with a post entitled The Truth and the Facts, all about Jesus being challenged by Satan and refusing to prove anything to him. Whether or not the devil could be trusted to make good on his offer was not the point. 
Its potency lay in the fact that the kingdoms of the world were his to give. Driven by his vicious hatred of God, Satan had both the means and the motive to make that offer. The question was not would he do it, but would Jesus take his offer and do his bidding? I followed up on my request with an email to Tony's own email address, provided to me by an ex-member, on October 16th. But again I've had no response, now over 12 months later. I was keen to provide Tony the opportunity to give his side of the story, but the only conclusion I can draw is that he's not interested in doing so. And based on what I've heard about the views of those in OI towards those on the outside, I can't say I'm too surprised. I'm told that Tony and his followers believe that they are the chosen few with access to heaven, but unlike most churches, have rarely since their early days been interested in spreading the word to other people. This is from Tony's Outreach Letters series in the late 80s. Many are called, but few are chosen, said Jesus. And the record, both of scripture and of history, shows us that though the many may indeed be many, the few are exceedingly few. Christianity has, by and large, always emphasized reaching the many, on the pretext that it cares for lost souls and so must rescue as many as possible from eternal damnation. In contrast, Jesus though initially attracting many who clamoured to have their needs met, soon set about gathering the few. In the process, he had no compunction about doing and saying whatever was necessary to thin the crowd down to the handful who qualified to be amongst the chosen. David explains this further. They don't recognise anybody else other than themselves as being Christians. They don't acknowledge that. Everybody else is wrong and they're right. And they ridicule other people. You know they ridicule anybody that's not within the context of their church from a spiritual perspective. In the 1988-89 Outreach Letters series, Tony is very critical of the so-called Christian system. He says, It's not very hard to find the freedom-depriving oppressiveness, the mistrust and lack of true love endemic in Christianity. And believe me when I say that the judgment reserved for apostate, antichrist Christianity is far greater and more dreadful than that which will be meted out to the communists or the most immoral of men. And it has always been God's desire to have a people for himself. He never set out to create a religion of any kind. He certainly did not create Christianity in its many and varied forms. All he has ever sought is to have a body of people who live only for him. Max agrees that OI members felt that they alone had it right. Uh, We were the bride of Jesus Christ. Everybody else had it wrong and blah. But he says they were very much meant to spread the word, except it was perhaps in a fairly passive manner. We weren't meant to be evangelical. Not at all. Um, But we were meant to shine the light, which is the whole reason for being called elsewhere, right? Spread the seed and, um, oh God, all this cliched stuff but I remember an analogy about little lights in one of Tony's tapes uh, that was encouraging people to go to other places and and live there and and then just be there for uh, other people to find. Here's another excerpt from the Outreach Letters series. When God calls a man to be an apostle he calls him to gather people together around Jesus. Those people become a body, a local church. That church in turn is meant to grow into the representation of Jesus, which was first embodied in the apostle who gathered it together. It is then that the church as a whole, rather than the individuals within it, becomes the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and a city set upon a hill. And it is then that God is able to add people to it. For those who seek the light will be drawn to it. In her 32 years in the group, Laura knew of only a couple of people introduced as new members. You know, like I've got lots of friends, particularly from school, <laughs> that are Christians and they're like, love, they're totally lovely. And I could see if they had an inkling that, you know, some friend they met or some person they met was like interested in, you know, lovely and interested in their life and maybe wanting to go to church, they would be like, come along. That would be so open. Not a why. And that's where I feel like you couldn't even bring people in. It was too hardcore. Things were different back when Laura's parents encountered Tony for the first time. I asked Laura what it was about this man that she thought reached people like her parents. He draws people in. He um, makes you feel warm and fuzzy when he likes you. Makes you feel shit when he doesn't. 
but you want to climb back into that place of feeling accepted again. Anne and David expanded on this. Because, like I say, he's a charmer. He's very charismatic. He really has the kind of personality that makes you want to keep him, to please him, and I think that's part of where he's been so successful. Outreach International is not an officially recognised religion and does not have charity status as far as I could find in Australia, though there is an entity with the name in the UK charity records. According to a notice in the South Australian Government Gazette on 22nd December 1977, a group called Outreach International became an incorporated association under South Australian law in that year. I'm told from a few different sources that as far as they knew, there was no independent accountability of any of the finances. In terms of the leadership structure, Tony would select leaders by invitation, which he could revoke at any time, and always men, as mentioned previously. There was no formal theological training structure for those who were selected. I asked Laura what was preached about during her experience with the group. Although I grew up born into a church and left at 32. I barely know the Bible because it was like, we're too cool for that. We're more about family and love and God's light in a relationship with God. Um, and we're elite and we're the only ones. So we know better. We don't need the Bible because the Bible's for the other Christians that don't really know what they're talking about. Max couldn't help me out with this one. I quite willfully forgot most of the things about OI that, uh, that related to content. Aside from a time when everyone was directed to buy and read a copy of a book called The Shack, and also The Chronicles of Narnia at one stage, I've heard, it seems that the main reading material members were expected to consume were Tony's writings. Some former members have told me of the disapproval they received for reading other texts, religious or not. One had considered whether they had been rebellious in pursuing their reading in spite of his disapproval, as if that would have been a bad thing. I have to say here that every person I've spoken to who has been a part of OI is hugely considered and always examining their own motives as to whether they're coming from the right place. I think this is a genuinely great quality, but that sometimes it can go too far. The idea of doing some extra reading even being examined at all as to whether it may have had a rebellious motivation is concerning to me. I know I don't often put my own thoughts into these episodes, but I have to say I think it's hugely important to educate yourself whenever you're able to, and would question anyone who tells you not to. If someone were reading something that I disagreed with, I'd encourage them to do more and wider reading rather than less. David emphasised that he felt there was a lot of fear encouraged in members of OI. No one in the church seems to be happy, you know. It's not like there's any joy or fulfilment there. Their people are just in total bondage. It's like they think that because they're out of the religious system that they're free, but they just created their own four walls. It's just total bondage. A bunch of people in total bondage and living in fear. Because people are told that if they leave OI, basically they're going to go to hell. So people are afraid. I asked Laura's father, Robert Sullivan, what the beliefs of OI were as opposed to other Christian groups. He said it was about giving yourself completely. By definition, love must be shown. So therefore, showing it is to give yourself to the people that God has given you, not to other people outside, but give yourself, that's what's, you know, your own blood family or anyone else, is give yourself, give yourself to God by definition, because you... Even Tony would say, well, give yourself to God was like that could be hairy fairy. So we're going to nail it down. Give yourself to God by definition is give yourself to the other people God has given you, which is your other people in the church mm. and him, of course. You know. mm. So that's where the definition of love and giving is. So the, that, that's, that's where the financial giving comes, everything comes into that. David points out how Tony's use of the word love differs from how it might usually be understood. They'd ask you to do silly things just to challenge your commitment to them, knowing that if you did it, you were committed to them. And everything was very conditional. Like, they preach and advocate this unconditional love, but you know the fact is, it's all conditional. They say they'll do anything for each other, only if you're part of the church. And the way I equate it is, you know, 
You're never going to stop loving your children. You're always going to be committed to them, regardless of what they do. But with OI, you're either in or out. So this whole commitment thing is very, very, very conditional. This whole love thing they have. Tony says in his Outreach Letters series, If the sheep have a true shepherd, one who lays down his life for them, they dwell securely, they know they are loved. If, on the other hand, their shepherd is no more than a self-interested hireling, they can never rest nor feel secure. And with justification, for they know that when a wolf comes along, the hireling will do everything to save his skin and care nothing for theirs. On the About Us page of OI's website, Mark 12, 30 and 31 are noted as Jesus' two great commandments that God gave to Tony for the vision of Outreach International. They are, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And, Love your neighbour as yourself. Some interpret loving thy neighbour as thyself in terms of generosity and good deeds towards your fellow humans who may not be friends and family. Tony has been known to speak on the difference between godliness and goodliness, referring to the latter as an act that's inherently selfish, as it's supposedly more about making yourself feel good. Rather than acts of charity or social justice work, Tony frames being a lover of Jesus as the greatest aim in life, which he closely ties to this endlessly giving spirit. Not endlessly giving to those less fortunate, however, but endlessly giving to OI. From the Outreach Letters series, Love is much more than mere words. It is paying the price. It is giving yourself wholeheartedly and totally, without counting the cost or drawing the line. Those who love, in word only, would do better to shut their mouths, for their own words will one day be their condemnation. And from Chapter 8 of The Ultimate Attainment, written by Tony Costas in 1983. There is, of course, a great deal of attraction in helping people. It's nice to be known as a caring, good-hearted person. It certainly helps your reputation and generally wins you esteem and support from both the church and the community at large. On the other hand, what gain is there in being known as a lover of Jesus? It might even get you labelled as a fanatic. Yet there is no other way for those who want to please God. If you are unwilling to pour out all that you are and all that you have on Jesus, if you'll not give yourself to him in the abandonment of love, you'll neither please him nor reveal him to this needy world. In Tony's own publications, there are various mentions of giving and its relationship to the love of God. He repeatedly draws a line between love and giving. This is Tony himself speaking in Adelaide on the 22nd of October 1995 in a video called the purpose of sacrifice, that you can watch on OI's website. God keeps giving us things that we can sacrifice to him. Why? Because he's a depriving God? Because he loves to give you something with one hand and snatch it back with the other? No, because he knows that your whole fulfilment is in him being glorified in your life. And he cannot be glorified in your life unless he's exceedingly precious to your life, and he cannot be exceedingly precious unless you pay a price that makes him precious, which is why God instituted sacrifice right at the very beginning. It's why people always sacrificed to God. Because if you don't have a sacrifice, you don't pay a price. And if you don't pay a price, you give God no value. One of Tony's core messages to the church goes back to the Bible verses mentioned earlier that became his overriding theme. In Chapter 6 of The Ultimate Attainment, Tony has much admiration for an act in David 12, 1-8 that he himself calls gross extravagance, whereby Mary pours expensive spikenard ointment over Jesus' dusty feet and wipes them down with her hair. In lavishly displaying her love for Jesus, Mary gave true love a fitting expression. What less could she do? When you truly love someone, is it possible for you to demonstrate the reality of your love without giving? Not only will you give, but neither practicality nor common sense will have any bearing on how and what you give. Godly love entails all that you are and all that you have. If you really want to please him, there is no alternative. And in chapter 8, Tony compares Judas's reaction to Mary's extravagance as Typical of a certain kind of Christian, 
Worse than that, he typifies a certain kind of insider Christian. In chapter 13 of the seventh book of his Building with God series, Tony writes, You cannot give to God unless your focus is on God, for your giving must be for his sake alone. You give to him because of who he is and what he is worthy of. You should not need something constructive or worthwhile to give to. If it happens that what you give has a particular application, that's fine. But you should not need something like that as a focus for your giving. You need no focus other than God himself. Without any form of charity or service being performed by the organisation, the only recipients of all of this extensively emphasised giving appear to be the OI leaders. Tithing is a crucial part of being an OI, although it would never be referred to by the term. And I'm told members are made very aware that 10% of their income is not considered nearly enough, and that 25% is a generally accepted starting point, plus all unexpected windfalls should also be given up. Here's Robert Sullivan. That was something that happened, to my recollection, in the early days of when we were in Adelaide, it was probably, could have been 76 onwards, 76, 77 or something, um, and uh, somehow, somebody thought, probably Tony, I guess, was that you, uh, over and above, you give your normal income out of your ordinary money, but if you come across, like, won the lottery or come across money so that you could look at it as unexpected, you had the privilege and the pleasure of giving that to the church. Even teenagers working casual jobs during high school or students trying to put themselves through university are required to pay. Max was made to put aside a portion of his pocket money as a child for the church. I see the church doing that, like the Catholic Church and other, other religions doing exactly the same thing, so I don't, um, but they don't do it quite as strongly. I think they encourage giving, but they don't demand it. When I first spoke to Laura, she was trying to get a foot in the Sydney property market in her late 30s and says she knows exactly where her house deposit went. The Ottawa Journal's July 25, 1979 edition, briefly mentioned earlier, published an article entitled Salaries for Ministers Wrapped by Church Founder by journalist Rose Simpson. It's one of the few things that comes up on this group on Google. It includes the following, quote, Clergymen should not be paid salaries to avoid the risk of becoming victims of the selfishness money creates, the founder of Outreach International said Tuesday. Too many clergymen turn their calling into a living, said Tony Costas, the founder of the church which began as a coffeehouse operation in Melbourne, Australia, in 1967. Not being salaried keeps you clean, he said. It's easy to become a mercenary in this business. Costas lives off gifts from members of his organisation, he said. So does the Ottawa minister. Yet both ministers are in the process of buying their own homes thanks to donations. End quote. As far as I could ascertain from those I've spoken to, Tony never had any other form of income that they were aware of, though some said it's possible he qualifies for some kind of social security payments from the government. Property searches in Melbourne today show that Tony Costas and his son live in large houses around the corner from each other, each with valuations over a million dollars. Tony preached that, quote, he should be having steak and you should be having mincemeat, one previous follower told me. While the pastors were also having to live by faith, as Tony called it, they were tasked with looking after him as well, so each pastor was also regularly giving to Tony directly, as were other members. This is an excerpt from a letter Tony wrote to Robert Sullivan and his wife, copying Judy, in December of 2005. The Cathay Pacific biz class flights from Sydney to Hong Kong, then Hong Kong to Vancouver were great. As you know, it really is the way to go, and it's beginning to feel quite normal these days too. We love the comfort, the very attentive service, the food and the movies on demand. We had quite a bit of rest and sleep too in our flatbed seats. When they'd heard he and Judy were going, Robert and Donna Sullivan had given Tony $10,000 just for this trip. About their trips, Anne said, I don't understand. I mean, they go on these trips. I don't know what they do on the trips. Max says of these trips, It feels like now that he was using them to legitimise himself. I remember Nigeria as this big thing that happened. Like he went to Nigeria and spent some time with a local village and um, had this 
another epiphany from God and came back and um, there were all these sermons based on it. I was a kid, but, um, but that was the thing that was referred to when I was growing up. Other ex-members had similar feelings, finding the trips mysterious in their purpose. Anne and David question whether OI is spreading the good news of salvation through a reconciled relationship with Jesus, or spreading the gospel of Tony. The couple also question why the church members pay tax and then support the pastors through offerings, which mean that the pastors pay no tax, live what they describe as lavish lifestyles, and do no perceivable work. I mean, the pastors do nothing. Because they don't necessarily preach a message on a Sunday even. They just get together and attack each other, basically, or talk about Tony's latest ramblings. We'll go into some further detail about this aspect of OI shortly. When Laura was born into OI in the late 70s, the church had a fairly traditional structure in terms of worship being in a hall or gathering place, pastors giving sermons, people sitting in rows and listening, and that kind of thing. Church was every Wednesday and Sunday, and the Sullivan family was now living in Adelaide, South Australia. Then in the 1990s, things changed quite drastically. Here's Laura about this shift. In the 90s, when they decided to do this thing called the scattering, and the scattering was where either people themselves went, you know what, I feel God's telling me to move to Jakarta or move to New Zealand or move to Wagga Wagga or wherever, um, and so they would move. Or the pastor would say, I, um, I want you to move. Here's Tony's own voice again, speaking at the New Zealand family retreat in 1998. God opened doors and created situations in all kinds of ways and places and things, um, leading up now to this incredible scattering. Now, that's just so much God. The big effect of the scattering was that members weren't concentrated in high numbers in places anymore, and some communities only had a couple of OI families in them. Max's family was one of two in Singapore, with a few more scattered across Southeast Asia. Tony was keeping in touch via emails with the membership called ALLS, A-double-L-S, or CALLS for Community Correspondence, ROLLS for Region Correspondence. There was like five or six families around Southeast Asia all under this one guy, and uh, he would send us a tape. Uh, but by that time we'd got CompuServe, like pre- not precursor to the internet, but a, a sort of a private internet, and, uh, and so we got recordings on on email rather than tape, and lots and lots and lots of emails, both sent and received, uh, right around the region. And um, and then there would be these regional get-togethers where we'd go to um, a resort somewhere. But what happened on Wednesday nights and Sundays now was that these smaller meetings were held at people's houses instead of a hall or meeting room space. And instead of sermons, members sat in a circle and shared with each other. Laura described it for me like this. They literally put chairs in a circle, sit in a circle and make people talk about their lives and they get challenged. Grown men cry. You just basically get beaten down about anything. So that's where there's a thousand stories you could be told by me and a million other people because that's where it went really bad. Max had similar experiences at his Wednesday meetings and told me this was an aspect he found pretty damaging, especially in hindsight. People would share things about their lives, um, good things, bad things, and um, you know, just, just things that they've done, decisions that they've made. And um, at least in the groups I was in, almost invariably those decisions would be torn down and psychoanalysed and usually put into a negative light somehow. And it was just a, an evening of people attacking each other and and saying that they were doing it out of love. I asked Robert about any specific examples of people being challenged that he could think of. Something like a, a, where this guy is going to change his job or where he should live. And the whole meeting is devoted to some, it's even a boring subject, and, and, 
and everybody, well, why do you want to do that? What, what, what's your motive? Why, why, you know, have you considered other options? What if God said this? What? And this person's been beat down, and it's just, it's, it's just a waste of time. And after lunch, it would come back to say, and it might last for a day and a half sometimes. Don't think I'm exaggerating there, am I? It was just hours and hours, and you say, and almost come to, and everyone's like come to some decision on this person's behalf or mm-hmm. trying to beat him into agreeing that this is the best thing to do about something like buying a car, what type of car to buy, you know, mm. uh, or uh, where to live or a job. I mean, stuff you can just talk about outside. Well, don't talk about it. Let the bloody guy decide himself. It's his life, you know. Yeah. Just like it's, it's irrelevant. Laura talks about what types of behaviours were frowned upon in these sessions. Being independent is not good. Having ambition is not good. There's a few key things. Um, independent, ambition, um, like even personal, I guess, projects and passion um, and creativity, that kind of stuff, not good. Yeah, drive, drive is not a good one. Um, you know, all those things. I see it now as it was a threat to them, but at the time it seemed like it's selfish to do anything that makes you feel happy, like happiness wasn't good. Like if you said, oh, I'm, I'm doing life drawing classes every week and I love it, oh, I don't know, they'd challenge you on the, the fact that you love it so much that you shouldn't do it. I remember at uni thinking I needed to give up my drawing because I love to draw. I have to give it up because we were told to give up things we love. Like, life just had to be, like, basically unhappy. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but anything that created happiness or made you feel connected to yourself and not connected to God or people like them, like the community, then then, then it wasn't good. Laura told me about one of the last meetings of one of her friends who got repeatedly challenged about her weight. How is that church? How is that godly? How is that about God? How is that a church? Like, how is that, like, this is why you don't bring someone to a meeting, by the way. Like, how is that possibly considered a church anymore when you're just talking about your weight? You're just being challenged about your weight by 50 other uh, people. Like, if you just put a camera in there and just showed someone, like, a, you know, 10 minutes of that circle of talk, no one would go, that's a church. That looks like a church to me. They would say that looks like a self-help slash bullying session. Or Weight Watchers session, like, you know, it just, they've lost perspective completely and they just hurt people. I mean, everyone also wants to be the one who's not in that position. You do anything to not be in that position on the hot seat, be challenged, be scrutinised is the word they use to. Like, you don't want scrutiny, you should want scrutiny. Like, you know, all those things you should open up and want in your life. So, you know, everyone's trying to be on the other side, the ones to, to... challenge or maybe say nothing I was always happy if I just got through it and say anything <laughs> you know so you're just doing everything not to be the one to be challenged but it's always going to be someone being challenged otherwise it doesn't work you know this aspect of OI brought to mind the game in Synanon the California-based drug rehabilitation support group turned cult that I looked at in episode one of this season Anne also adds not only that but all the children are in the meeting and they're discussing things that are intimate between couples in front of all the kids that, you know, it just seems so inappropriate. I spoke to a couple of people about sex and OI's attitude is that it's for after marriage. But with young couples, even playing around was going too far and they would have to share with their pastor about it. The idea of not sharing was completely trained out of them and they really felt they had no right to a private life. I was told they felt like the guilt would kill them if they didn't share, even when what they'd been doing was very far from intercourse itself, and was what to me is a very natural part of growing up and becoming closer to another person in a blossoming relationship. Some people had memories of boys having to share about masturbation, or having watched pornography at the group meetings as well. Dr. Marlene Winnell is a psychologist, academic, and daughter of Pentecostal missionaries based in San Francisco. She came up with the term religious trauma syndrome two years ago and wrote the book Leaving the Fold, a guide for former fundamentalists and others leaving their religion. 
In an article for Raw Story in October 2018, when asked about the difference between religion that causes trauma and religion that doesn't, she said, quote, Religion causes trauma when it is highly controlling and prevents people from thinking for themselves and trusting their own feelings. Groups that demand obedience and conformity produce fear, not love and growth. With constant judgment of self and others, people become alienated from themselves, each other and the world. Religion in its worst forms causes separation. I'm going to leave you here for the first part of this episode because there's so much still to cover. In the second part, you'll hear more of Laura's personal experiences, about dating in OI, about the members' views on those outside of their church, various perspectives on leaving the group, and about the ongoing issues those who've left have faced afterwards. And don't worry, although we usually release monthly, you'll only have to wait a week for the next part of this episode. Or even less if you're a Patreon supporter, as I'll be putting it up on the Patreon feed as soon as it's out of sound design. Please consider spreading the word about this particular two-part episode. For one thing, it's been a massive project for me. But mainly, I feel a huge sense of responsibility to all of the brave people who spoke with me about their experiences in OI. I have a great admiration for all of them, and can only hope that I have done their stories justice. A very special thanks to Laura, Robert, David, Anne, Max, and all of the other people who spoke to me anonymously as well, for their generous and brave contributions to this episode. There is an online support group that's been created specifically for XOI members. If you were a part of Outreach International and would like to be involved with the support group, please write to me at ltaspod at gmail.com or via the Let's Talk About Sects Facebook or Twitter pages and I'll point you in the right direction to find it. A thanks to our Canadian voice actors too, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and Bonnie Lee from Writing About Crime. Please listen out after the credits for promos for their excellent independent podcasts as well. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Let's Talk About Sects is researched and presented by me, Sarah Steele. Sound design and music is by Joe Gould. Voice work by Robin Warder, Bonnie Lee and Joe Gould. My information sources, which are fewer than usual, are listed on our website at ltaspod.com where you can find links on how to support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, merchandise or donation. And do please mention the show to a friend if you feel they might enjoy it. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me for the second part of this episode. I'm Bonnie Lee, the host of Writing About Crime a Canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases. The people, the places, and the events that join together to create a narrative, not a scoop. I am not reading you the news. I am writing about crime. I hope you'll join me 
on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 